Welcome to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 80. I'm Joel Payne, and in this episode I meet singer, songwriter, author and convener of artistic community, Andrew Peterson. Uh, Andrew Peterson, thank you so much for joining us on the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast. Thanks for having me. Just just tell us uh, where in the world you are at the moment, what the weather's like, what's going on. Well, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where my family and I have lived for the last 25 or so years. And uh, and I am at, at home in my little writing office. And uh, spring in April in Nashville is is arguably more beautiful than England. Right, <laughs> that's a big claim. Like, I'm a I love England, and uh, and this is the one time of year that I'm not pining to go over there. So because Nashville is just magical, just beautiful, beautiful weather. And so yeah, I'm sitting in here on a with a light drizzly rain, and all the flowers are in bloom, and it's just beautiful. Oh, it sounds lovely. Now a number of us um, read your book, Adorning the Dark, over Christmas. I don't know why somebody mentioned it. Someone else did, and before you know it, we'd all gone and bought it an ebook and so on. Um, which which I also read and really enjoyed. I actually got it on Kindle, and when I bought it on Kindle, they said, "Do you want the audiobook for a few more pounds?" And I thought, "I never get audiobooks," but I thought, do you, "Yeah, do you know what? I will because I was doing a lot of running. I was doing a lot of trading at the time. I, thought, I could listen to this, so I did." So first thing I want to know is, is it you reading it? That is me. Yes. <sighs> Good. Because I, I, I imagined it was. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and you've been exactly. on my runs. Yeah, and I yeah. actually, um, I, I was just scanning back through it today before chatting to you. And I realized that I've associated, because I listened to it on runs, I associated all the different stories you tell with different places where I go oh, running. That's, that's awesome. Which is, which is really yeah. wonderful. But a, a bit that really um, struck a chord with me was that we, my wife and I recently moved house. and. Um, we downsized we built our own house before and then we got an opportunity to get this other place which is much smaller it's a little bungalow it's dark it's pokey but it has a beautiful garden with a brook running through the back and so on and and while I was reading the book and running we were going through this process and agonizing is this the right thing to do and a lot of what you talked about in the book was a real encouragement to me that we can make this work yeah, that's good. That sounds, I mean, I tell the story of us doing the same thing, like moving to a smaller place because the land uh, appealed to me and it was the the right decision for us. I hope it proves to be the right decision for you. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, a brook in your back garden is doesn't sound too terrible. No, it's lovely. But what I've now discovered is that I'm very worried about whether or not it's raining because I'm so aware of whether the brook is running. Yeah, yeah, and we true. had several weeks with virtually no rain and the brook almost dried up. And then yesterday yeah. it rained and I was I was celebrating. Great. Um, we're a community of songwriters and, and I'd like to sort of jump straight into the, the, the sort of the nitty gritty of the songwriting thing. Because one of the first things anybody really wants to know about other songwriters is you know, what's your process? That people will want to say, Joel, ask Andrew, how does he do it? How does he write a song? Where does the song begin? How does it develop and so on? So can you kind of sum yeah. that up a little bit for us? Yeah, for me, uh, so I, I try to avoid it as much as possible. Like songwriting is like those people who say, I write because I have to write. Like I wake up and I just start, 
I, that is not me at all. Like I, I tend to procrastinate um, until I have an album to make. And so uh, when it's, when, you know, when I'm on a record label and so, you know, they, they kind of plan a year out and they'll be like, Hey, so October would be when we want the record turned in. And so then we plan backwards from there. And, uh, and so once that's on the calendar, I feel my mind shift into this different mode where I may not be writing in earnest, you know, like marking out time and spending hours, but my mind starts to operate like a songwriting mind, meaning I'm, uh, my radar is on and I'm scanning the horizon for ideas constantly. So while I'm doing other things, whether I'm working in my garden or, uh, traveling, doing shows, whatever it may be, I, um, I start to, to pay attention to the world in a different way. Right. Uh, it's just like, I dig a little deeper. And, and so, and then that leads to, um, you know, having these little ideas float to the surface, which I'll sometimes like sing into my iPhone, you know, uh, and then, uh, and then as it gets closer and closer to the deadline, I have this white hot panic and I, I, I double down and just cram for like two months and I'll just write and write and write and write. And so what it usually happens is, uh, I tend to write at night mostly like, uh, uh, there's something about the 11 o'clock hour that, that things start to wake up in me. I, 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 I think I feel like people aren't eavesdropping on me. I can, I can kind of sing with abandon and not feel like I'm making a fool of myself. And, uh, and when I'm in that mode, you know, often I'll be up till 4 a.m. Uh, and I usually hang out here in my office. I've got a piano and a guitar over there and my computer, my journal. And, and like on a practical level, it's just, it, I think of it as a kind of musical chairs where I'll, I'll, uh, I'll work on, I'll play, mess around on the piano for 30 minutes or an hour and try to find a part that I think is cool. And once I find it, I'm like, Ooh, that's something. And once I'm, I've, I've run into enough dead ends there, then I switch to the guitar and I try to play the same thing on the guitar until I'm dead there. And then I'll go to my journal and try to think of lyrics and melodies, song ideas, and, and I'll work till I'm dead there. So by the time I'm back to the piano, I've made a little bit of progress and there's more of a song to play. Mm. And, uh, and so that's the kind of general approach to it. And most of the time I, I go to bed without anything solid mm. and I'll wake up the next morning. I'll listen to what I did yesterday. It's terrible. I'll start over. Um, but for, for me, you know, I think it was Robert Frost said that, that a poem begins as a lump in the throat. Um, and I think that's the way it is for me. Like there's some emotion that I've, that, that I'm trying to articulate some, something that feels like there's a potential there, but I can't make sense of what it is until I really, really wrestle with it and, uh, try to try to make something that conveys the, the thing that I felt that got me into it in the first place. And inevitably it's different. It ends up being different from the way it was when it started. Does that, does that get to your question? Yeah, that's good. I, one of the things you, you said in the book is that you noticed that other artists will write 50, 60 songs for an album but that actually you just chuck them out along the way and try and, and narrow right. it down very early on. Yeah. It, like it's hard for me to get excited about a song uh, unless there's some nugget of uh, some glimmer in it that I'm like, this is worth fighting for. And, and if I don't sense that glimmer, I don't, I, I can't get excited about doing it. So that's what I'm, I'm always looking for is that lump in the throat, that one little something that could be either a good, a guitar part or a piano part or an idea or a turn of phrase that won't leave me alone. 
And that's the thing that I pour all my energy into. So usually by the time I've, I've finished that song, whether or not it makes it to the album, it's a song that I'm, I'm relatively proud of, you know, it's something that I like. Uh, so the, but the idea of like, you know, writers here in Nashville, there are staff writers that show up nine to five every day. They just kind of throw stuff against the wall. And, and the crazy thing is they don't even have to like what they made. And then it turns into a hit song by somebody else. You know, there's this very like, uh, you know, it's like a, a an electrician going to work, you know? Um, and that to me just, I uh, just does, I have too many other things that I'm interested in other than songwriting that, to want to spend that much time on something that may not work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is there a, a, te- a sort of cultural tension then in, in that kind of national scene between the production line songwriters and the, the artists? Is, is that um, fair? I think, I think there may be some of that, but for the most part, everybody, everybody is like cheering everybody else on. It's yeah. like, it's just a matter of calling. Some people write for this thing. Other people write for this thing. And I kind of, I, I don't look down on the people who do that. I kind of stand in awe of it. And, and I'm a, honestly a little bit jealous because the co the, a lot of those guys are co-writers. So they, they have appointments every day and, and I hear, and basically they just hang out with their friends all day. <laughs> you know, they have this, like, whether or not they wrote anything, they're going to go get lunch after their three hours of basically a counseling session where they're, you know, pouring each other's hearts out to try to find a song. And there's something really beautiful about, you know, that idea that your days are spent with friends trying to make something beautiful. Um, but I, I'm more solitary than that, which which really means I'm more insecure than that. OK, yeah. And so do you have to get a song a long way towards finished before you share it? Yes. Yeah, yeah I have to I have to be pretty sure that it's it's uh, something that I, I would stand by. And then, you know, I'll have my little collection of 10 or 12 songs and go meet with Ben Shive, who's usually my producer, and and uh, start to play through them, and and you know he augments them, and other songwriters will come in and help with the verse. That's my, that's my favorite way of co-writing is when somebody says I've got a verse and a chorus and I'm stuck, uh, like so they're coming in with something. It's 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 drumming up something out of nothing that's hard. Like if somebody's got a a, a good runway already, I really love privately saying, hey, let send me that and I'll work on it and send you back some ideas. Uh, my daughter and I write that way. So my daughter, Sky, the, is an excellent songwriter. And she she texts me her lyrics. And I love just like tinkering with the line. Like, oh, what if you said this this way? You know, it would be a little smoother. Um, I kind of enjoy that song doctoring thing. You mentioned that some of the, the insecurity of a, um, a songwriter. And I, I was struck by that in your book, that you, you talk quite a lot about the anxiety and self-doubt that is... I suppose perhaps a necessary part of an artistic process, but definitely something that's real for you. And I'm sure common to lots of um, the writers we're involved in. I'd just love to know, are there there particular strategies that that you found that help with that, particularly when it's kind of really weighing in on you? Uh, Prayer. Yeah, it's a good one. (laughs) Honestly, like just most of the time, you know, I talk about in the book, this idea of resistance with a capital R, you know, that, that if it's true that one of the ways that human beings um, live out our, the the image and likeness of God in us is through creativity, Mm. uh, which is a way of shedding light in the world, then it makes a lot of sense that there would be an enemy that would want to shut you up. And so um, once you, once I frame those, that internal monologue as a spiritual battle, uh, it makes a lot more, it's easier to fight back. You know, uh, you kind of 
you can feel like you're crazy until you're like, oh yeah, that's right. This is, it's supposed to be hard. And this is like, it's, it, why are we surprised that it's difficult to make something beautiful in a broken world? You know, it's just going to be. And so uh, that's part of it, but also just um, having the right, um, like group fellowship of, of friends who are cheerleaders and resonators, like, like what you've described that you guys have is huge. I mean, it's, it's just huge to, to feel like you're not crazy to be in a room full of other people, at least, you know? Absolutely. Um, one of the bits of advice I, um, often give when people, if people bring me a song is, um, I ask that they, they, we sort of sing the song and I ask them to read the lyrics. So just say, read them to me, listen to the rhythm of your voice, listen to the melody of it. Can you turn, can you turn your melody into something more like that so that it sings natural? So it sings like you'd say it. And it's interesting because you, you used to, you talk about some very similar advice that you got about write it like you would say it, but actually that it, it's a bigger concept than that, isn't it? It's about sort of finding an authentic voice and, mm -hmm. and speaking as you. Can you talk a bit right. about how, how you found your voice or how others might find their own voice rather than become mimics of, of what's around? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of it is uh, you in the beginning when you're young, you can't help but mimic. You, you, like it makes it, it's a great practice actually to pick your favorite songwriters and try to write like them, you know? And uh, in the beginning, especially like, I'm a huge Rich Mullins fan and, uh, and you know, I, I think that part of the way I ended up wanting to do music in the first place was that, or, or the kind of music that I do was that I didn't, there was no, uh, there was no paradigm that I, that I could fit into. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up listening to classic rock, Southern rock, you know, and, and, you know, everything from Leonard Skinner to like weird uh, psychedelic Pink Floyd type stuff, you know, and, um, but I never, you know, I liked that kind of music as a kid, mainly because it was all I knew. And then slowly began to discover Paul Simon and James Taylor and Mark Cohn and like songwriting, you know, with a capital S. And, uh, but then I didn't, uh, I didn't really know Jesus at the time. I was trying to kind of foundering spiritually, and I didn't really have a context in which people were talking about the things that really mattered. And, uh, and they were excellent at their craft, yeah. you know, they were excellent poets. And so that's why Rich Mullins resonated with me is because, oh, here's, here's a guy like, you know, it coincided with me, um, kind of having this collision with the person of Christ when I was 18 or 19. And so, um, once I, once I realized he was real and that he loved me and I wanted to sing about him. I was like, okay, what do I do with this? And then I heard Rich's music and I was like, that is something that I, w I would love to learn how to do. And, and what I loved about it was that um, there was this, in him, there was like this mashup of high poetry and prose, you know, and really earthy everyday farmer talk. You know, <laughs> it was kind of like, it w which was something that I understood. I grew up in, the, in, the, in a rural situation. I'm not super well-educated. I love to read. Uh, so I care about words and stuff, but I also am like interested in uh, the folk part of folk music, like the, the people, you know. And so, uh, so once I heard that, I was like, "Oh, that's something I want to learn how to do," and began writing like him. But but eventually, you do you find your voice. That's the that's the whole trick. And somebody, I, I just I don't know if I sh how to share this, but like so I, I wrote a book over the quarantine and uh, kind of a follow up to Adorning the Dark. And uh, 
comes out later this year, but it's in, I sent it to a couple friends to edit it and tear it apart, you know? And one of the guys said something like, um, he was like, I'm just, I'm amazed at, at not amazed. He wasn't, he's like, he, he likes the fact that in my writing, I can pivot so quickly between, uh, more poetic language and very typical, uh, kind of, uh, earthy folksy language. And I took that as like the highest compliment because it was like one of the things that I loved the most, you know? And so I, that I realized I was like, Hey, that may be part of my voice. That that's part of how I write and how I, and then I thought about my songs and I was like, yeah, my songs are kind of that way. You know, like I love big ideas and concepts and wonderful, lovely turns of phrases. Um, but I also, uh, wanted to sound conversational, uh, in a way that makes sense to somebody on the first listen. And so, um, Anyway, I, yeah, I, I think that's me and it has taken, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years or so, and I still feel like I'm just scratching the surface of it. But, um, but yeah, I, I think as soon as you start thinking about your own voice, then you've, you've lost your own voice. You just have to write something that geeks you out. And then, uh, and that's going to be way closer than if you're, if you're conscious of trying to, trying to find a voice. And do you feel like you, you're still in a sense walking with those songwriting heroes around you? still influencing you even now absolutely yeah and and you know there's actually a, a lot of new one of the great things about having kids my kids are all grown now but they're way in the music and so they yeah. are my tastemakers now so they they send me bands and artists that i never would have heard of if i didn't have like an 18 19 20 year old and man the music is fantastic like there's so much good music being made right now um, that is so different from what it is that I do. And so now I kind of feel like I'm intrigued by the idea of try, trying to write toward that stuff, you know, just to see what it would be like. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always, a, it's a moving target. Um, but you, that's the joy of it is you, you, experimentation is, is, um, is thrilling. And I think Paul Simon is a great example of that. You know, like he, he started out as a super folk singery guy in the 60s. And yeah. and then, you know, his last few records were these crazy soundscapes, you know. Um, it still sounded like Paul Simon, but you could tell that he wasn't he wasn't trying to recreate the past. He was like curious. And I think curiosity is a is a is a secret weapon. I, I had an interview with him relatively recently, I, I think. And and he was talking about his the, the songs he's written and it was all about the sounds yes it was just all about him trying discovering and trying and it was almost like a kid in the sweet shop still with discovering yeah. different sounds and putting them together really really yeah, interesting crazy. you know we i had the the privilege of sitting with him for about uh an hour me and my friend ben shive the producer we got to meet him and uh he, when he was here in nashville and just ask him questions about songwriting and whatever and he did the same thing he talked more about he was like yeah there's there's like the sound of wood and the sound of metal. And I'm always trying to make sure that every track has metal sounds and wood sounds and, uh, and the tension and release. And like he, everything was very conceptual, uh, which I'm a lyric guy. So I was kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get to like, how you, how do you do, do lyrically, you know? Um, but it was fascinating. He's, he's like kind of a mad scientist when it comes to that stuff. Um, so that's, that's the thing is like, uh, I think songwriting is the same way. Like if you're bored of your own songwriting, then shake things up, you know, try to, try to write a song like, like somebody, uh, half your age. Yeah. Well, this is great. This, this is actually our challenge this month for our writers is to write a song influenced by a songwriting hero. Hmm. 
which uh, and we're going to kind of we'll talk more about it on the podcast but not necessarily well possibly completely mimic them if you fancy it oh, or yeah. you know, do a complete pastiche or find some aspect of them that in, that inspires you so i'm quite excited to see what happens i'm going to i'm going to try and channel billy joel That's oh yeah my, yeah so that that could be no. fun. That's going to involve some exciting piano riffs or something. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> One thing I remember hear, hearing Billy Joel say was that he he um, tries to play his own songs as classical pieces. Have you heard this? Okay, no. It's interesting. And, he, and it was like some songwriting session I watched him do where he was like on TV and he was uh, he played like Always a Woman and, yeah. and several other of his of his songs as these like kind of box sounding piano pieces and like the turns, like the weird modulations oh, in his yeah. songs are all like straight influenced by classical music. Isn't that crazy? That's really interesting. What, what the main thing that's always struck me about Billy Joel, so we're going slightly off topic here, but he um, is the, just the chord progressions are not rock and roll ones, but he puts them in rock and roll songs and they don't yeah. sound out of place. And I don't know quite know how he does it. So that's yeah, the, I yeah, that maybe that's the thing. Play it as a classical piece. Um, let, let's talk about worship and um, I mean, you, you don't sit in the genre of worship artist, um, and yet, of course, in a much broader sense, you, you're a worshipper, and and what you do, you know, fits into that category. Um, but it's interesting in the last couple of years that you, you sort of you've had a, a hit in the worship world with "Is He Worthy," which is just I, I don't know. Have you had the experience before where your songs have been picked up widely by congregations, or is that a is that a new experience? And I'd just love to hear a bit of the story around that song and and how it then sort of got out them in that way yeah i mean i've i've written a couple of songs over the years that i thought ah oh, maybe this could work as a congregational song and and there have been a few churches over the years that have done there's a song called um romans 11 the doxology in romans 11 that i wrote years and years like 15 or 16 years ago and put it on a a record of like b-side stuff okay, that yeah. i just released independently and uh and i went to some random church in Michigan, I think it was. And they were like, oh, we've used that as our doxology for the last 10 years, you know. So they're like, there are these little, little glimmers of that kind of thing. But I, you know, it's funny, part of it is personal weakness, um, that when I first started playing music, uh, or kind of my career began in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was right around the time Rich Mullins died. There was this sea change in Christian music, away from singer songwriters and to worship music and worship became the thing that everybody did and i just didn't do it i was kind of like no i want to i want to tell stories you know i want i want it to be okay to write songs that are sometimes explicitly about jesus but also aren't worship songs right that that, that are narrative and so uh so at the time it was like me kind of digging my heels in and saying no i'm not going to write congregational stuff i'm going to lean harder into this other thing because you don't tell me what to do, you know? <laughs> and so, and then I would go play churches and they would say, now there's going to be a worship set in your, in your concert. Right. And I'd be like, no, <laughs> no, it's a concert. Like, you know, like, yes, hopefully people will say, so I too, and I kind of regret that because uh, when we wrote resurrection letters, volume one, the, the album that is he worthy is on, um, I very consciously wanted it to be this kind of like, party of an album that just right out of the gate celebrated Christ and what he's done for us. And, and I wanted the concert to feel that way, you know, like no navel gazing singer songwriter stuff. This is all about 
Christ conquering death. And that's a party, you know? And so and when we Ben Shive and I were planning the, the album, I was like, let's think of it in terms of uh, three, you know, it was kind of like three different kinds of songs on this album. We're going to write songs that are going to be narrative that are about Jesus and the resurrection songs that are, that are going to be more uh, confessional, you know, songs that are talk about what, what it means to us. And then songs that would be, congregational so let's write if try to write a few songs we gave ourselves the assignment of trying to write a couple of songs that would be congregational um because i envisioned this concert being something where we were all sometimes singing together and so is he worthy came out of that process and um yeah i mean i the the writing of the song didn't feel any different than anything else really i just we we started going to a church uh, a liturgical church here in town um uh that it was, you know, as a kid who grew up very evangelical, kind of uh, legalistic Southern Christianity, American Christianity, uh, the liturgy was viewed with much suspicion, you know, and uh, high church stuff was w- w- way was super weird. And then I found myself at this, you know, evangelical Anglican church in Nashville and and loved the, like as a word guy, I just couldn't believe all these ancient prayers that I'd missed out on as a kid. And uh, and so there was one of the liturgies that we would read. um uh is christ with us he is is the spirit among us he is it was one of those things and one day i was kind of driving somewhere and i sang that and uh and i kind of had it on my phone and so i wrote the verses using that structure and then um was kind of stuck because i didn't know what the chorus ought to be um and then i remembered that question and answer that happens in revelation 5 and i was like oh yeah that's the perfect frame framing of these you know this call and response kind of song so yeah i mean it 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 was written pretty quickly but I, you know i so hoped that people it would resonate with people you want everything you write to resonate with people um but when i sang it the first couple of times i just i i was very emotional and i felt like the audience was surprised that they were invited to participate you know yeah uh, in the song like, there's something about the and I think a lot of American Christians are waking up to the the beauty of the liturgy in its right context, you know. And so I think this was like a little nudge in that direction that, hey, guess what? Sometimes worship isn't just the guy on stage singing at us. Sometimes we get to like engage in a conversation where we all remind each other what the truth of the gospel is. And um, and so, yeah, it was it was so then. So the song came out on the record and uh, I it was yeah, it's a it's a long story, but I remember the the day that the music video released. We we recorded this really. I've seen, be- I've seen the video. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it turned yeah. out so great. Like I I was so proud of the team that put it together. It's all one shot. Like like yeah. there's no in that that whole video. Was it was it your idea or was it was someone else? Yeah, it, it was my idea, but he like made it way cooler than I. Okay. Yeah. It's a, but anyway, yeah, we did the, and I don't know if you heard about the kerfuffle about the the race thing that happened with that video, but no. it was uh, it was interesting. It was like one of the harder moments in my music career because the day that video released, I was so excited. We had been praying and praying that God would use it, uh, you know, to to um, as He would. Turns out he did. Um, but the the day of the shoot, there was this huge storm in Nashville. And so most of the people didn't show up. The extras didn't show up. And it was just like an open call. We need 200 people to come to this church. And 30 people came. And th- they were all white. And so and, and when we were making the video, I remember noticing. I was like, is it weird that everyone on the screen is white right now? And we're singing a song that literally says, 
from every people and tribe, every nation and tongue. And the director, who was not white, like he said, well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird, but we don't have, what can we do? There's nothing to be, so it's going to be fine. So I trusted him, music video came out and Twitter just pounded on me. And somebody noticed it and a lot of people um, kind of were heartbroken by the mm. fact that the irony was so painful that as I sang that line, the camera sweeps across all these white faces. And I just was like, oh no, you know? And, uh, and I called some friends of mine, uh, people of color and said, hey, tell me what it was like for you to watch this music video. And they were like, it was pretty hard. Like, we love you and it's okay. Yeah. Like, they're not mad at me specifically. Just kind of, they were like, oh man, it was such a missed opportunity to show the glory of God's church, you know? And so anyway, that was like, I was sitting there crying, like in that chair right there, sitting there crying and going, oh Lord, like I'm so, I, I just, it, it broke my heart that this music video that we were so excited about and this song that we were so excited about um, was getting overshadowed by this, this kind of gaffe that I had made. And, uh, and I literally, while I was sitting there, my phone buzzed and I looked down and it was Chris Tomlin. And he said, he was like, Hey, I just heard your Izzy Worthy song. Can I record it? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of course you can record it. He's got this megaphone of a career. Yeah, know? of course. I came in the house wiping my eyes and I was like, uh, I was like, Hey, I just got a text from Chris Tomlin. So anyway, that was like the, it was this amazing blessing that on the day that I thought that that song had gone, like was going to get buried. Um, Chris said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to lift it up and uh, share it with people. And so, yeah, man, I, after 20 some odd years of playing music and, and just coming to terms with the fact that I was never going to have some big hit song and being fi genuinely fine with that. Like, like who, I would, I'd rather do what, like sing songs that I actually like to sing than try to chase that stupid thing. And then to have a song that meant so much to me that like, I felt like, I can barely make it through because it's the truth of the gospel. Mm. Um, and then to have that be the one that like, I get to go sing every night of, for the rest of my life. Like what a gift. So anyway, uh, it, it's just a, it's just a, a huge blessing. Um, and now that I do, you know, end my shows typically with that song, it's one of the songs that I'll, you know, people would probably be mad if I didn't play it at this point. Um, and I hear the audience sing, I'm like, man, have I been missing out on this congregational <laughs> thing for the last 20 years? <laughs> yeah. Like now I'm like, oh, wow, no wonder everybody loves to do this when they play shows. So um, my my concerts typically have more interaction now than they used to. So will you write, I mean, will you write more in that vein, do you think? Um, Only if the spirit leads. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it would be super weird if I tried to like make lightning strike twice. Um, and honestly, like the what the few songs that i've written for my next record sound way more like james taylor than anything else okay. like they're, they're guitar driven um finger style folk songs and so i would i you know the i still have that part of me that digs my heels in and so now that i've written that song i probably won't write another worship song for 10 years but yeah. we'll see i always i mean i i always set out to write worship song congregational songs i would say i can't i just can't work out how to write any other sort um, but over the last year or so, particularly in lockdown, half of what I've written has come out sounding like James Taylor and, and nothing like what I planned. <laughs> not so, a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> not a bad not thing. Bad. I was really struck, actually, that you talked about, you know, Alas have had a big hit with with that. So, so I would think of you as having a very successful career and, and so on. And, um, but actually, that's it. I saw his Chris Tomlin, that big news in America. 
it, across lots of sphere or just very much in the kind of the worship sphere i'm just interested in that I, I don't really know to be honest like i know he's a really good guy and we do very very different things like you know, his his way of doing music is is vastly different from mine but i i know his heart and i know that you know what he wants to do and yeah i think that like you know he, of all of the people in christian in the christian music world who could have texted me and said hey guess what you know i'm gonna help that song he's the guy who could have done it the best you know um he he yeah I was, so i was i was really thankful um and it happened so naturally it wasn't like i went to him and said hey will you please record this like he heard it and the spirit moved him and he was like i i really want to do this so um yeah anyway it, it it's a it's a pretty cool thing his version as well is, I mean, it's really similar to yours. It goes up a couple of keys, I think, but it's yeah. a serious voice. But I think it really is. We've only got a couple of minutes, I think, but I just wanted to finally ask you, just, just ask you a little bit more about community and, and how important that has been, continues to be for you and the kind of the role that plays in your, in your art, particularly where they intersect. Yeah, well, when you were saying earlier about, you know, you know, if my career seems like, you know, it's been this successful career, uh, like, it hasn't been because of any big hits, you know, it, it's been this long, steady burn and the, uh, which I'm, uh, there's this, okay. I'm trying to decide if I can succinctly say this, the, there was this article that I read. Oh, I think I talk about it in adorning the dark, that guy who did this study of like famous works of art and realized that there were that, that artists like, you know, from Monet to, van gogh to rembrandt you know all the way back whatever that they that there were these two like very clear paths that artists tended to take and um and he he named them the conceptualist and the experimentalist and the conceptualist was the artist like uh kind of like a picasso whose most valuable works are the early ones in his career because he like came up had some concept that shook up the art world and like, and then, you know, he had his career after that, but like the early stuff is like where he was finding that weird thing that he did. And, um, and he said, then there are other artists whose most valuable works like Rembrandt are late in their career because their early stuff, you could see that they were still figuring it out and they were testing and they experimenting. So the experimentalist has this long, slow, uh, trajectory to their career. And then the conceptualist is more like the one hit wonder, um, you know, doesn't really uh it's not really a bad thing but it's also just a different way of doing it and i've never met anybody who would rather be a conceptualist than ex an experimentalist we, we would all rather have a life that is rich and full of uh it's like slow growth right slow growth in this learning how to how to find the art than having the one hit wonder lots of lots of cash and then you sit around by the pool for the rest of your life who wants that you know and so uh I'm human. So all, over the years, there have been plenty of times when I've been like, gosh, I just wish that, uh, you know, you look at other people's careers and you go, ah, oh, man, you know, it sure must be nice to have that kind of hit song, whatever. And then, you know, the Lord just winnows away all of that stuff, you know, as, as he works on you. And so for me, it was like a really beautiful thing to kind of come to terms 15 years ago with like, this is, this is the field that the Lord has given me to till. And this is, this is what I want to do. And I'm, I'm probably never going to have some huge arena show. I'm just going to like try to do my work. And to, to answer your question, the way that you do, you sustain that over the course of 20 or 30 years is community. Like you, you're, you pay attention to the voices of your spouse, your church, your best friends, 
they see your gifting better than you do. Um, and they, they can tell you when you're crazy or they, they tell you to keep fighting, you know? Um, and that's, that's one thing, but also the community gives you something to write about. Like the community reminds you that music is for people, right? It's like, it's like a, it's a lot of things. Music can do a lot of things, but like it, if you're writing songs that are made for, to, 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 uh, facilitate worship, right? Uh, the worship of a God, then it is humans who are worshiping that God. And like you're writing songs for these humans and it's their stories and their sensibilities and um, their brokenness that you're thinking of. So if you're, if you're growing as an artist in the confines of a community of people, then you'll never run out of things to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll also never run out of like uh, encouragement. If it's a healthy community, you'll, you'll be able to keep doing it. And so uh, anyway, that's my thing is I would much rather um, have a rich life in community than get rich. Andrew, thank you um, so much for, for coming on to talk to us. Um, it's been it's been wonderful to meet you and hear some of your stories. I hope the, the new book comes along uh, before long. We'll all look forward to reading it and uh, every blessing. Thank you so much. <laughs>